Thank you guys so much for being here tonight. I'm excited to continue on in our uh, third Monday series this fall. So I want us to begin by just imagining this for a moment. Imagine that you are in the cockpit, uh, uh, the cockpit of a plane during the last few minutes on a flight from New York City down to Miami. Okay, so you're in a cockpit, you're watching as this is taking place on your way down to Miami, and you're in the last few minutes of the flight. And as you look in, the, uh, at this moment, the captain and the uh, first and second officer they are preparing the plane for its final approach. They're getting everything ready for its final landing, and they're starting their dis final descent into Miami International Airport. And as they're going through all these things, they begin to look at the control panel on the, in the cockpit, and as they look over, there's one light that should be on that's not yet. Okay, so it's the landing gear for the front nose section of the plane. And this light should be illuminated, but so far it's not. And the pilots are like, well, what in the world is going on here? That, that's kind of not normal. That light should be on here. So the pilots go and they run everything again. They re-go through all the motions to get that landing gear into place. And once again, the light is still not flashing. So at this point, the pilot is a little nervous, so he radio, radios into the airport and requests that they no longer come in for their landing, but instead that they can hold steady at an altitude of 2,000 feet until they can figure out what the problem is. They radio back that everything's okay, they're holding steady at 2,000 feet, and at that point they decide they're going to figure out what in the world is going on with this light. Okay, so at that moment, the captain first sends the second officer out of the cockpit down into the plane to get a visual to see whether or not this landing gear is actually in its right position or not. So he goes down, he's in the plane. At that moment, he tells the first officer, engage the autopilot, and then we'll take a look at this. So he goes over, you're watching, you see him engage the autopilot, and they come over and they are fidgeting with this sensor for a little bit. Now, as a few minutes go by, the pilot and the first officer are getting more and more annoyed because they're messing with this, they're radioing in, they can't figure out what's going on, they're kind of banging on the sensor, they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And during this four minutes, what they didn't realize was that the captain had bumped off the autopilot during the entire time. So over this four minutes, the plane had been descending a few hundred feet every minute. Now, there's a safety control once you hit a certain altitude that a C cord comes through the cockpit to let you know that you're descending, but they were so fixated on the light that they didn't even hear it and it never registered in their minds, okay? So as it's getting lower and lower and as four minutes passed, finally, the first officer looks over and says, I think we did something to the altitude. And the captain responds, what? Are we not still at 2,000 feet? And the last words you hear is the captain saying, what's going on here as the plane crash lands into the swampy Everglades of Florida? Now, that was something that actually happened back in the 1970s. I was reading a little bit of the transcript there. That was a plane wreck that happened back in, I believe it was 1972. And this flight actually led to a lot of different uh, trainings for pilots in the future. It led to a lot of different uh, security features to make sure that wasn't repeated. But after the crash was thoroughly investigated, this is the finding of the official report. They said the flight crew failed to monitor the flight instruments during the final four minutes of the flight. So during those four minutes, they didn't look at the control panel one time 
they never noticed that it was descending. They said that they failed to detect an unexpected descent soon enough to prevent impact with the ground, a preoccupation with the malfunction of the landing gear positioning sensor distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the crash to happen. The investigation also revealed that the problem with this sensor was a, a light bulb had gone bad. So that's what they had been focusing on for the last four minutes. So during these four minutes, they were so fixated on the light bulb that they forgot the major task right before them of safely flying a plane. One little burnout light bulb resulted in the crash of a jumbo jet. Distractions can be deadly. The distraction of a burnout light bulb kept the pilot from checking their flight instruments for over four minutes, and thereby they missed all of the warning signs. The crew became so fixated on the urgent, the light flashing that wasn't flashing right before them, that they lost sight of the important of landing the plane safely. Um, how many of us, before too hard on the pilots, have done the same thing, though? How many of us with the vehicle that we pilot regularly have been distracted while we're driving it? But what am I saying? I'm sure that none of us have ever taken a phone call or texted or happened to look down at our phones while we're driving. None of us would ever do that, right? No one in here? Right. No, I, I'm guessing there's probably a few of us who have been guilty of being distracted by the urgent text message that's buzzing over the importance of keeping our eyes on the road. And my point is this. It can be really easy sometimes to allow the urgent to distract us from what is most important. And that's true in our spiritual lives as well. We can be guilty of allowing the urgent tasks of our day hold us back from focusing on the one task, the one thing that is most important. And we're, tonight we're going to learn about a woman who had let that happen in her spiritual life. She'd become spiritually distracted by all the urgent things that were on her to-do list, and it had distracted her from being present and being near Jesus. Now, here's the thing to keep in mind as we jump into this passage. Everything that she was distracted with was not a bad thing. They were all good things. She wasn't distracted because she was scrolling through her phone on Facebook for four hours every night. She wasn't distracted because she was been watching Stranger Things when the next season drops, right? She wasn't distracted because she just uh, decided last minute to go watch a game with, the, with, the other, with her other friends at B-dubs, right? Because the Packers are on. That, that's not what she was distracted with. She was distracted with all good things. She wasn't lazy. She wasn't undisciplined. She's kind of the opposite. She's really a workaholic in a lot of ways. No one could outdo her when it came to serving. But she was so focused on working and serving that she forgot that there could be something possibly more important than that. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 38 and 42 tonight. Um, 38 to 42. Luke chapter 10 picks up during the last six months of Jesus' earthly ministry. And during this time, Jesus is wandering around with his 12 disciples from city to city, from village to village. And oftentimes when he entered into a new village, he is looking for friends or acquaintances that he winds up staying with for accommodations. So he relies on the hospitality of other people as he's journeying through these different villages. So in this account, they're just outside the city of Jerusalem, entering into the village of Bethany. And when they arrive, a woman named Martha invites them into her home and throws them a grand reception. So look at verses 38 through 42 for our passage tonight. It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. 
And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you're troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. In this passage, we see two sisters that from the rest of the gospel accounts, we know they had a good relationship with Jesus. So when they get the phone call, well, probably not the phone call, when they get the messenger, right, that Jesus is going to be coming for a visit, I'm sure at that point that they were probably elated. They were overjoyed. They're so excited to see Jesus. However, Martha's excitement was also intermingled and coupled with an overwhelming sense of anxiety and kind of fear as well. Because Martha was a worker. She was a doer. But not only that, she was also a perfectionist. She possessed an off-the-charts gifting for hospitality. This woman is absolutely incredible at showing hospitality. When you go to her house, it's always impeccable. There's no uh, lingering pet hair on the floor to sweep up. There's no dirty dishes getting smelly in the sink. There's no bed that's left unmade. Everything was perfect. And when you go into Martha's house, it always smelled of delicious baked goods and cookies. And don't you even think it was from a box. Betty Crocker was a curse word in her mind, of course. It's all, you know, it's all homemade. Everything was, was made from scratch. Her house was perfectly decorated. It's not too stuffy, but it's cozy. It's just all those things. She just was an incredibly hospitable person, and she refused to compromise her incredibly high standards of hospitality. Now imagine what a woman like that is going to feel when she hears that Jesus and his 12 closest friends are going to be there in no time, and you have to be buried to receive them and throw a feast. You're probably going to be excited because you love to show hospitality, but you're also going to be a little anxious because you think about how much work needs to be done because you can't compromise your standards. She's just thinking of all the hours and how little time she has to prep this. Imagine what that would feel like. For me, I I don't actually have to imagine because I can kind of visualize what this would be like because I grew up with a Martha in my family. So everything I just described about Martha being like the absolute homemaker and loves showing hospitality but has ridiculously high standards, that's my mom, okay? She listens to all my sermons like three times. Sorry, mom, just prepare. No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But it's my mom. So she was incredibly gifted at hospitality. And at one time when I was in my senior year of college, I called my parents and asked to come home for the weekend. And of course they were overjoyed. And then I said, well, in that case, can I also bring 30 of my closest friends, right? So I, I needed to take a place. I had a team of 30 for a short-term mission trip, and we needed a place to stay for the weekend for training. So I called up my parents because our other place got canceled and we had nowhere to go. So of course, like any good millennial, what do you do? You call your mom and dad. <laughs> So I called my parents and they, my mom had the joy of seeing her son, but she had the fear of preparing meals for 30 people and getting the house ready. You know, that, but she did, she did a phenomenal job with that. But you, you see that desire of wanting to host, but also the, just the anxiety that comes with all of the work. And that's kind of where Martha's at in this moment. As soon as she hears Jesus is coming, she is overjoyed, but she also goes into hospitality mode. 
She immediately runs to the market and stocks up on all sorts of food and drink. She cleans the house and washes all the linen. She sets the table perfectly and probably had little name cards for all the different apostles just labeled exactly right at their place set setting. She wanted to make sure that everything was perfect for when Jesus arrived. She really embodied Romans 12, 13, where it says we are to contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality. She wanted to show hospitality. And we need to realize there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with Martha's desire to show excellent service to Jesus and to love him in that way. That's an admirable thing. Serving with Serving Jesus with excellence is something that we should all aspire to do. That's not what Martha uh, gets in trouble for in this passage. The problem arises when Martha begins to allow serving Jesus to distract her from worshiping Jesus. Look at verses 39 and 40. It says, And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened while he was teaching. But Martha, she was distracted with much serving. Jesus and the disciples, once they finally arrive, I'm sure that Martha probably made sure to have their feet washed from their long journey. She probably had out on the counter lots of different munchies and beverages for them to get refreshed. And after they're ready to go, Jesus says, okay, everybody in the great room, I want to have an afternoon teaching session. I've got some important things to convey to you guys. So the disciples excitedly go into the great room. They find the best spot on the couch. They probably pull out, you know, their notepad and their pen, and they are ready to listen and just so in what Jesus has to say. Now, Mary has a long to-do list, but at this point she realizes the greatest teacher the world has ever known, the Son of God, is in our house and he's getting ready to teach. The to-do list can wait. So what does Mary do? She goes and sits at the feet of Jesus. She gets the front row seat and she says, I'm going to soak in everything that Jesus says. Now, we see in this passage, Martha desperately wanted to be in there as well. She wanted to listen to Jesus. She knew that she should be in there listening to Jesus. But guess what Martha was feeling in that moment? Anxiety. Because as she sat down, all the things going through her mind were all the little things on her to-do list that she hadn't done yet. So Martha's thinking, I should be there, I want to be there. But she probably decides, you know what, maybe I'll just get a seat kind of in the back to where I can pop in and out if I need to, and I can just kind of listen in to as much as I can. But after a couple minutes, as Jesus begins his discourse and his teaching and everyone else is excitedly taking notes, guess what Martha hears? She probably hears the oven beeping and she knows it's time to put the roast in, right? And her mind immediately goes to dinner and now she has to get that ready. So she scurries out and goes into the kitchen and begins working on dinner a little bit. And just as she gets ready to go back in, what she see in the sink? Mary was supposed to do the dirty dishes, but Mary didn't do it. So angrily, she goes over and starts washing the dishes. And then as she's ready to go back out, she looks out and realizes, oh, the clothes that I just washed for Jesus are out on the line and they're dry. Jesus needs a fresh tunic. I need to go fold it and put it on his bed, you know. So all these things are running through her mind. And as she's wanting to get back to Jesus, our passage says that she was distracted with all of these other things. And that word distracted is a really interesting one. The word distracted there is actually in the passive voice. And it means that she was literally being held back and pulled away by all of the concerns that she had. So the idea is she wanted to be there, but all of these things kept running interference, preventing her from getting there. We've probably experienced that before in our own walks with Christ, haven't we? Have you ever had a moment where you knew that you should be having some quiet time or you wanted to draw near to Jesus, but then your phone buzzes with a phone call? 
the email comes in, you realize something's dirty, something else happens, and what happens? Well, you just keep saying, you know, I'll just get to that later. We just say, you know, oh, let's just postpone that one till tomorrow. We all know what that's like. So Martha knows she wants to be there, but all these distractions keep coming up, and her chore list and her high standards just keep dragging her further and further away from the feet of Jesus. And then do you know what happened before long? The joy that she used to feel when she served left. It was no longer delight to serve. It became a duty. Before long, when it became a duty, guess what it became? It became drudgery. And then drudgery quickly gave way to self-pity and resentment, and she starts asking, why am I the one who always has to do all the work? <laughs> why isn't Mary pulling her weight? Why do I have to be the responsible one in the family where everybody else just gets to do what they want? Why do I have to do all of these things? So she begins to get a little agitated. She probably started, you know, maybe slamming the dishes down a little bit so Mary would get the hint to come help her. Or maybe if Mary wasn't getting the hint, she kind of looks in at Mary and gives her the eye and kind of gives her the head nod to get in the kitchen with her. But Mary is fixated on Jesus. She's not looking. Finally, she's not playing passive-aggressive anymore. She's just full-on aggressive. She walks right in and she says, Jesus, do you even care about me? Do you even care that Mary's left me alone to do all this work? Would you tell Mary to get off her butt and help me? Send her to the kitchen. And what's she doing in that moment? It's so ironic. She goes in and she literally is kind of rebuking Jesus a little bit. He, she's like, why don't you care enough about me to make Mary help me? And she's going in and she's expecting Jesus to say, yeah, Mary, she's right. You, you made the wrong decision. You need to get in there and help your sister. You're being so selfish. That's what she's expecting, right? Her, she had a little bit of self-righteousness puffing up in her, in her heart a little bit. But what does Jesus do? Kind of flips the tables on her, doesn't he? And she winds up getting the rebuke. But he does it very softly and very gently. What does he say? He says, Martha, Martha. That's a tone of familiarity and friendliness in scripture when he says it twice. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you're troubled about all these different things on your to-do list. When only one thing right now is necessary. Mary chose the good portion. And I will not let that be taken away from her. Essentially, Jesus is looking at Martha, and he says, Martha, give me your, give me your to-do list. Give me your chore list, right? And she kind of hands it over to Jesus, and he grabs it, and he says, okay, just, just wad that up, you know. We're not doing that anymore. That's not important right now. I'm teaching. You need to prioritize listening to me. One thing is necessary. Martha had allowed the urgent to take priority over what is most important. She'd lost sight of what her highest priority was supposed to be. Martha was anxious and troubled by the sheer amount of things that she had to do. All she could think about was working and serving and doing. But Jesus is saying there's something far more important than serving right now. It's listening and worshiping. And Mary got that. She understood that in this moment, she couldn't allow any distraction to get between her and listening to the words that Jesus was trying to speak to her. She couldn't worry about making a feast for Jesus when she knew she needed to be there feasting on the truth that he was giving. Mary understood that sitting had to precede serving. Mary understood that life with Jesus has to come before working for Jesus. Mary was invited to sit at the Savior's feet and to savor his teaching and presence, and she wasn't going to let anything hold her back from that. Now, as we think about this story, try to realize what this story is teaching us and what this story is not teaching us. 
This story is not saying that there's this false dichotomy between a life of working and serving and doing and a life of contemplation and worship. That's not what this story is is saying. We know from scripture, the Christ-centered life, it is filled with work a lot of times. It is filled with self-sacrificial service. It is filled with a lot of the attributes that Martha is showing in this passage. That's not what it's saying in this, uh, in this context. Jesus isn't saying that serving with excellence is a bad thing. So what is Jesus trying to say here? I think he's trying to say this. We can be guilty of doing the right thing at the wrong time. We can be guilty of doing the right things at the wrong time. Or to say it this way, here's kind of my big idea, my, my, the one idea from this passage that we can walk away from tonight. It's a bad thing when we allow a good thing to become a God thing. It's a bad thing when we allow a good thing to become a God thing. The reality is there's a lot of good things in our lives. But the problem becomes when those get elevated above our love for Christ. It's a bad thing when a good thing becomes a God thing and thereby becomes an idol. Martha had been so fixated on impressing and serving Jesus that she forgot to make time to worship and commune with Jesus. When Jesus began to, t- to teach, she, in that moment, had a question of prioritization. Do I prioritize cooking and cleaning and preparing and serving? Or do I prioritize setting down my agenda and listening and obeying and worshiping. Now, both of those are very good things, but notice Jesus says here, there's only one that's necessary. There's only one that's the good portion. By choosing serving over sitting, she turned her serving into an idol. And here's just an oft-neglected reality of the Christ-centered life. Good things in our lives can easily turn into idols. Idols oftentimes aren't necessarily just (laughs) apparently bad things. A lot of the times it's good things that have become the ultimate priority in our life. They've become a God thing and literally taking the place of Jesus as our highest affection and our priority in our heart. Martha knew where she should be. She wanted to be in there with Jesus. She knew that she needed to be there right beside of Mary, listening to his words and being refreshed by his presence But Martha allowed the urgent tasks of everyday life to get in the way of what was most important. She neglected worship for work. It's a bad thing when a good thing becomes a God thing. So what was that one thing? What was that highest priority that we see? What was that one thing that was necessary? It's spending time sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his word, communing with him, and worshiping him for who he is. So, Let's ask ourselves some diagnostic questions this evening. Am I really making my highest priority in my life spending time with Jesus? Am I really making time each and every day to spend time listening to him in his word? Am I making time to spend regular time just communing with Jesus through prayer? Am I making time to attend a Bible study and to invite accountability into my life? Am I protecting my Sunday morning as a non-negotiable because I need to be here worshiping God? If not, then we need to ask ourselves an even deeper diagnostic question. Were the good things in my life that apparently I've allowed to become a God thing? Were the good things that I've turned into idols that are holding me back from the one thing that is necessary from the good portion? Let me give some examples of what this might look like. 
Maybe it's the college student who struggles with being a perfectionist. You're in college and your highest goal and your highest desire is to get all A's, to graduate and just get the job that you want. So every single night, your nose is in the books. You want to graduate summa cum laude, you know, a B is just a disgrace in your mind and all of your time and energy and effort is going right into your studies. And you think to yourself, I would love to go to a crew or an intervarsity or I'd love to be on one of those, but that's just not real for someone like me. There's no way I can make time for that. Maybe it's the high school athlete who has dreams of playing soccer one day in college. But collegiate soccer is hard. It's difficult. It's all-encompassing. So as you do uh, soccer for your school and club soccer and all these things, it winds up being every night. It winds up being every weekend. And you're trying to balance that with work and school and all these other things. And then when your small group leader checks in and says, how's your time with God? Are you growing? How's your time at church? And you say, I don't even have time for sleep. How in the world could I ever spend any time with, with God? Maybe it's the young professional out there who's just doing tremendously well at work. Maybe this young guy has worked hard through college to get his dream job and you're a couple years in and you love your job and you're already being promoted and you're making more money than you could have imagined. But over the past couple months, you had to stop coming to young adults on Monday nights because you were always working overtime. And now that you come to think of it, you really haven't been to church in multiple months now, because Sunday is now your only day off to sleep in and catch up on, on, on sleep and rest, you begin thinking to yourself, yeah, I've really slipped in a lot of those areas, but something's got to give when you're trying to climb the corporate ladder. Maybe for some of us out there, it's the, the, the super moms of Wausau. You've got a color-coded family calendar that is just like a work of art. And you are a full-time shuttle service for your children to all of the different activities in their lives. And when you, when you aren't shuttling kids around, there's a never-ending list of chores and things to do around the house. And every day is just a whirlwind of taking one kid to piano lessons, one kid to ballet, one kid to this or that, and working the booth, the, food, the snack booth at the junior high football game. And there's just, your calendar is exploding. And you think to yourself, I don't have an hour for myself. How in the world could I find an hour to be part of a women's Bible study or to, to get plugged into something like that? That's just, that's just not realistic. Or how about the person on staff at a church that's allowed serving Jesus to take precedent over worshiping Jesus? I was talking with one of my mentors last week, and he mentors a lot of pastors and missionaries. And, and here's what he said to me. He said, Andrew, I oftentimes ask pastors and missionaries how their personal quiet time is going. He said, do you know what answer I get most commonly back? He said, here it is. I'm too busy with the demands of ministry to have any personal quiet time. There's just not enough margin in my life for personal worship because I'm just giving all the time. And he wasn't very happy with that response. <laughs> it's not a good place to be. I once worked with um, a gal on staff who was a, a director um, working with a, a different age group, and, and she was... She was a phenomenal servant. She poured herself out day in and day out for the kingdom. But after a while, she just seemed a little bit burnt out. <laughs> so I was having a conversation with her, and, and as she was talking, she said she hadn't, she'd been working at church every Saturday and Sunday for months, and she hadn't been to a worship service in months because she was just working during the worship service every single time. Sometimes we can allow doing things for Jesus to take priority of spending time worshiping Jesus. Sometimes we can allow good things to become bad things by becoming a God thing. Now, as we think through those examples, 
we can see how easy it is to allow good things to become bad things by becoming idols in our lives. Is there anything wrong with being an athlete, a straight-A student, a loving parent, being great at your job or serving at your church? No. Those are all fantastic, wonderful, great things. I applaud all of you there trying to accomplish those things. But there is a problem when we begin to love those things more than we love Jesus. Did you know you can love your job more than you love Jesus? Did you know you can love your kids more than you love Jesus? Did you know you can love money more than you love Jesus? You can love success more than you love Jesus. And here's one that I have to preach to myself all the time. Andrew, you can love ministry more than you love Jesus. You can love preparing a sermon more than you enjoy your own quiet time. You can love being a pastor more than you enjoy being a worshiper. The one thing that is necessary is loving Jesus with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. We can't allow ourselves to become distracted and anxious even by the good things in life. Because remember our opening illustration, the moment we take our eyes off of the important to focus on the urgent, it's disasters never far behind. So I want to close this time with just three practical words of advice. How do we apply this to our lives? What do we do with this message? How do we make sure that we're choosing the good portion and prioritizing our relationship with Jesus? Here's our first, first principle. We have to learn to distinguish the urgent from the important in our lives. Uh, a, lo- a, a few decades ago, President Eisenhower was asked how he was so productive all the time. He was one of the most productive generals and presidents that our nation has ever seen. And someone asked, how do you get so many things done? And he kind of drew out his Eisenhower matrix of how he prioritized things in his life. And he said, there's four quadrants in our life. There's things that are important and not important. And then there's things that are urgent and not urgent. And they talked about things that can be urgent and important, urgent and not important, you know, kind of filling out the quadrants there. He said, the problem is a lot of people fill their calendars with things that are not urgent and not important. How many times are we guilty of that? Not urgent and not important. Scrolling through Facebook, not urgent, not important. (laughs) Going to the gym seven days a week, well, you know, it's, it's important to have some exercise, but it's not urgent. And I don't know if that needs to be the number one priority in our lives, right? Um, making sure that I get as many days on the golf course as possible in the three months of summer, right? Well, a little urgency there, but is that the most important thing in the world? I, I, I don't know. But we have to learn to distinguish the, the urgent things in life from the important things in life. And we need to make sure to prioritize the important things first, right? That has to take priority and precedent over everything else. Uh, A a long time ago, I saw an illustration where there's kind of a jar with big rocks, little rocks, sand, and water, and it talks about prioritizing. And the idea is you have to put the, the big rocks in first to get everything to fit. If you start with the sand and the water, it doesn't work, right? I keep this on my desk now as a reminder of prioritization and how to rightly prioritize the big rocks in my life. So when people come in my office, most people are like, why is that jar of junk on your desk? And then I get to explain what exactly it's about. But the idea is what, what's the big rocks in our lives? What are the important things that we can't keep our, take our eyes off of? Well, from this passage, we know the one thing that's necessary. And that's spending, making sure that we're prioritizing time, worshiping, and communing with Jesus. There are other big rocks in our lives as well, but that's got to be the foundational one. But so many times we treat that like the water that just gets poured on last and fills up the cracks. 
So first, we have to distinguish the urgent from the important. Here's a second principle. We need to realize that busyness is not a badge of honor. We need to realize that busyness is not a badge of honor. Just think about this. What's the most common response that you get when you ask someone, how, is, how are you doing? What do you hear nine times out of ten? Busy, right? Everyone, busy. That's just like the American response. I'm so busy all the time, right? I'm guilty of it. I say that all the time. I talk about how busy I am, right? And here's this, there's this idea that we have this tendency to wear our busyness as a badge of honor. We somehow think that our level of busyness determines our worth or our value or our importance. And we can begin to find our validation in our busyness, uh, Busyness becomes this facade of significance in, in our lives. But is incessant busyness really a commendable attribute? Did I misread the fruit of the Spirit in the 10th fruit, or the 10th aspect is actually busyness, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, and busyness. Like, no, right? That's, that's not the fruit of the Spirit. Busyness is not, is not there. And you know, I've noticed, I think a lot of young adults especially struggle with this idea of I'm just, I, I'm so busy all of the time. And I think sometimes we can be so busy because we are unknowingly addicted to entertainment and distractions. I, we live in a culture where being bored is like the ultimate sin. Right? I, I can never be bored. I can never adapt. Like, I always want to be engaged. I always want to be doing things. And because of that, I fill every last margin of my calendar in order to avoid it. Gone are the days where we want to practice spiritual disciplines like Sabbath and solitude and silence. Ah, like there's a, you know, that's the enemy. No, we can't do that. We, so we become busy. But a lot of the time when we're so busy, we talk about how busy we are. When we look at the things that are so busy in our calendars, what oftentimes is consuming it? We're busy with our hobbies, <laughs> busy with hanging out with our friends, busy sleeping, <laughs> busy traveling up north every weekend, busy going to the gym, busy watching sporting events. Yeah, our calendars are busy, but we have to ask the question, what are they so busy with? Is it things that's building up the kingdom? Things that's enhancing my spiritual life? Or is it just things that are keeping me entertained? Because I think a lot of the times we can allow entertainment and recreation to be the ultimate end of our, of our, that's holding us back from doing what's most important. And even worse, I think sometimes our busyness winds up being a convenient excuse to not do the things that are most important. Can you serve at church? I'm too busy to do that. You know, can you come and I'm too busy to do that. I just, I'm way too busy, right? We allow busyness to be this idea of like, I feel good about myself so I can say no to spiritual things. Don't wear busyness as a badge of honor. It's, we can't do that. Here, here's our third priority. Here's my last principle for tonight. We need to schedule time to sit at Jesus' feet. We need to schedule time to sit at Jesus' feet. I, I don't like the idea where people say, you know, you just got to gotta find time to be with Jesus. No, you don't have to find time. You have to make time. Because what happens if we don't schedule time with Jesus? Something's going to take its place. It just happens. In our life, there are so many things that can fill those voids, that can eat those minutes up. And if we don't block off that time, if we don't take our to-do list and just say, you know what, this is important, and I'm not gonna deny that, but I have to pause because there's something that has to come first. What has to come first is sitting at, at Jesus' feet. Doing life with Jesus has to come before doing life for Jesus. We have to have that time where we, where we are just 
worshiping Jesus. We're, we are praying to him. We're listening to him speak to us from his word. We have to be filled up before we're ready to pour out our lives into other things, into other people. We have to carve out that time to just be still and know that Jesus is God. But we're not very good at that. A lot of us like the busyness because then we can be distracted from asking the big questions and really doing the contemplation that's hurtful sometimes in our hearts. But I want us to just think about that in our lives right now. What are the ways that I need to make sure that I'm not letting good things become a bad thing because they've become a God thing? So we're just going to practice that right now. So I just want you guys to take a moment. I, I know it's a little uncomfortable. Your phone's probably buzzed three times and you really want to pull it out and send a text message or tweet or something. But that just keep them away. Keep them away. We're going to practice a moment of just silence, solitude, and reflection. So just pray, commune with the Lord, and listen as Sam and, and the rest of the worship team are going to lead us in, in a song of reflection and worship. <laughs> 